Hello, and welcome back to the Living Well Podcast by Jefferson Health. I'm Carly Williams. And I'm Jessica Lopez. In this episode, we're talking about all things related to gastrointestinal health, or GI health, from how to cultivate a healthy gut biome, to what it could mean if you find blood in your stool, to food sensitivities and intolerances, including gluten. That's right. We'll also discuss everything you need to know about colonoscopies and the latest recommendations. Our guest today is gastroenterologist, Dr. David Kastenberg. He'll talk about the research he's done on colonoscopy prep, when family history matters in regard to your own GI health, and answer the questions some of you submitted to us via Instagram. Yes, thank you for those. And a reminder to follow us on Instagram for future podcast updates and opportunities to submit more questions. Our handle is at Jefferson Health. Jefferson Health is one of the largest providers of gastrointestinal care on the East Coast, and we're very excited to have Dr. Kastenberg joining us today. Hi, I'm David Kastenberg. I am Chief of Gastroenterology at Jefferson and oversee the GI Enterprise for Jefferson Health. I grew up in South Jersey, where I currently reside, and have been pretty local my whole life. I went to Rutgers College and NYU for Med and did my training, my medical training in Philadelphia. I did my residency at Temple and my fellowship at Jefferson, where I've stayed on since. Great. Thank you. The stomach is often referred to as our, quote, second brain. Can you speak to why that is? Sure. The stomach is often referred to as the second brain because there's a lot of neurons in the GI tract. In fact, there's more neurons in the GI tract than there are in the brain. So it's a pretty smart and sensitive organ. There's a very strong interaction between the gut and the brain, and this affects you know, many GI illnesses. In fact, sometimes it's really the sole cause in a lot of cases for, for people's symptoms. So we're always very interested in the brain-gut interaction and how much it's playing a role in, in people's symptoms and, and how can we modify that. Sometimes if that relationship is too strong and it's too intense, how can we reduce the intensity there and, and make people feel better. And what are some of the most common digestive disorders that you're seeing? Are there any disorders on the rise? I'll start by saying there's no shortage of GI problems in this world. There's a big demand for gastroenterologists. Starting at the at the upper end of things, there's acid reflux or GERD is a very common disorder, irritable bowel syndrome with both constipation or diarrhea or both is very common. With that disorder, we're always thinking about things that can imitate irritable bowel, things like celiac disease or bacterial overgrowth or food intolerances, colon disorders, colon polyps are common, and and obesity is really common, and obesity-related disorders like fatty liver, for example, are are common. So those are some of the things that we're seeing pretty commonly these days. I'm just curious if you're coming to your gastroenterologist for the first time and you're maybe having some of those symptoms of a digestive disorder, what are the best kind of log of symptoms that you should be bringing to that appointment to share with your provider? So the kind of symptoms history that we want to know about are how long you've had the symptoms, what was your baseline before they started and where are you now? And what are the kind of things that provoke the symptoms? So is it better with eating? What makes it better? Are there certain medicines or certain things that you can do to make it better? Where is it? How long is the symptom lasting? Does it occur at night? Does it wake you up from sleep? 
Is it associated with any kind of systemic symptoms like weight loss or rashes or eye problems or joint aches? Those are the kind of things that can help narrow down the differential diagnosis of, of what might be going on. I wanted to talk a little bit about food intolerances. Could those be symptoms of larger disorders? Can you explain what a food intolerance is? Food intolerances are extremely common and commonly cause GI symptoms. That's how they oftentimes manifest. So a true food intolerance generally does not cause any kind of damage to the GI tract, but it's the associated side effects of that food intolerance that does. So for example, people don't feel pain in the colon if you were to take off a polyp or if you were to do a biopsy. But what does cause a lot of pain is if the intestines get stretched. So if you have some sort of food intolerance that causes a lot of gas, and it's causing your, your GI tract to be distended, that can be very painful. Mm-hmm. Having like bloating and gas and diarrhea, those can be manifestations of food intolerances. We worry about more serious things when people have symptoms that we would label alarm symptoms. So let's say you're having weight loss or trouble swallowing or in, you know bleeding from your GI tract. That would give us pause to say this is an intolerance. We'd be looking for other disorders. And sometimes things are confusing. So sometimes people have an underlying GI disorder. Let's say they have inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, or Crohn's disease, and they present with a symptom. We ask ourselves, is this the underlying disorder that's maybe exacerbated? Is this some new problem or intolerance that may be related to inflammatory bowel disease? Or is it something that's completely new and independent? And so those are the kind of thought processes that we're thinking. A lot of people with irritable bowel have food intolerances. And there's a diet called the FODMAP diet Mm -hmm. that has been shown to be very helpful for patients with GI symptoms, and in particular patients with irritable bowel. That's a diet that eliminates a lot of different carbohydrates that some people just can't digest well and an ex like lactose intolerance would, where you get bloating, gas, abdominal discomfort. You might have a change in your bowels. It's kind of a complicated diet and you'll see like about a million references to it if you go online and Google FODMAP. But if I'm going to put someone on a FODMAP diet, I like to involve a dietitian just because it's a little complicated. And if people feel better, which they oftentimes do, you don't want to remain on the full extent of that diet forever. You want to gradually narrow it down so that your limitations are just to those FODMAP foods that bother you. Mm-hmm. And that kind of leads into how can someone with food intolerances help heal their gut health and quote, get back to normal after mistakenly eating something they probably shouldn't have. The best way to do this is to stop doing it. If you have intolerance to fatty foods, you know, it's hard. You're out with your friends and you want to have chicken wings or whatever. It can be difficult, you know, trying to be careful or considering what might be, quote, healthy, unquote, choices or, you know, situations that would not bother you. There's also workarounds for all these things. Let's say you have lactose intolerance, for example. There are dairy products that have very little or no lactose. So like Greek yogurt or physically hard cheeses or adding supplements that allow you to eat those foods if you want to. There might be some that you can tolerate better. And then like workarounds, enzyme supplements, et cetera, that might help you feel okay, even though you're eating those things that that could potentially bother you. Let's talk specifically now about gluten. 
it seems like more and more people are trying gluten-free diets to help everything from alleviating certain skin issues to brain fog. Can you talk about the benefits of going gluten-free, the differences between a sensitivity and then something like celiac disease? Focusing on gluten and its role in GI illness, there are, I, I guess I would put people into three categories when it comes to gluten. One is gluten sensitive. That's more of an intolerance. Gluten allergy, which is really rare. So that's like a food allergy. And then there's celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease. Starting with celiac, we have very solid and firm ways to diagnose celiac disease. There's blood tests, antibodies that are very specific and sensitive for celiac disease. There's a small bowel biopsy, which can be extremely helpful. And then there's the response to therapy. If you see all those things, if the antibodies go away, the biopsy normalizes, your symptoms go away, then we can be pretty comfortable that you have a diagnosis of celiac disease. Those patients can never eat gluten mm -hmm. uh, under any circumstance. And then there's gluten allergies, which are really rare. Food allergies are rare and hard to diagnose because oftentimes if they go to an allergist, those foods won't test positive on skin testing or blood testing. So food allergies are tough to diagnose and you wind up eliminating the food and feeling better. And then there's gluten sensitivity. And a lot of people feel better off of gluten. Probably a pretty big group of them are actually FODMAP intolerant because gluten is a FODMAP. And it doesn't really matter for what reason you stop. If you feel better off of it, it's so different than it was, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. There's so many gluten-free, really great options. I mean, there's no restaurant, I don't think, on earth that hasn't accommodated a gluten-free patient. That's not to say that some do a better job than others. If you're gluten sensitive and you don't have, it's not a FODMAP sensitivity, we don't really have a great way to diagnose patients. There's no specific blood test or biopsy. So it's really based on symptoms. And there was a study several years ago, being on a gluten-free diet does carry a slightly higher risk for various nutritional deficiencies. It's not completely benign, as long as you're eating a balanced diet and if you feel the need taking a multivitamin, it's very, very safe to be on a gluten-free diet, but it is a lot of work. And so I really recommend it if it's truly needed because it's expensive, it's a lot of work, and there's a slight risk for some nutritional deficiencies in the long term. I can ask a follow-up question about that. I do remember when this first became popular and people were going gluten-free specifically to lose weight which was a questionable choice. I remember reading, and I could be mistaken, that if you stopped eating gluten and you didn't need to, then your body could be, like develop an intolerance to gluten. So you could be hurting yourself in the long run. Is that true? Was that ever true? That's not really true, but this is, this is something that is true. First of all, <clears throat> in terms of the weight loss issue, most people who really have celiac disease and go on a gluten-free diet, they're going to gain weight for a lot of different reasons because- their GI tract has not been running efficiently and mm -hmm. now it's going to heal and pretty quickly and it's going to be a lot more efficient. Second reason is that gluten-free baked goods are oftentimes the way that the workaround for that is that they're often is very high fat and high calorie. So you have to be really careful with gluten-free baked goods and breads. So most people who have celiac who go on a gluten-free diet are going to gain weight for a variety of reasons. Now, a lot of times it's not uncommon celiac disease can present in a lot of different ways. It can present with symptoms. It can present with signs. So like anemia, for example, 
It can present with a skin rash. There's a really wide way that it can present. And a lot of people may not have any symptoms at all. So how would you get diagnosed if you don't have any symptoms? Well, your sister might have celiac disease. And so I'm, it might be recommended, well, since your sister has celiac, you should be screened because we know that your risk for celiac is a lot higher. And you might get screened and lo and behold, you feel perfectly fine, but your antibody's positive. So you might speak with that person and they might say, no, I, I really feel fine. I don't really have any symptoms. If they do get diagnosed with celiac, it's not really relevant. They need to be on a gluten-free diet. But what I've oftentimes observed is that people who don't notice any symptoms oftentimes mm -hmm. feel much better on a gluten-free diet. And those people who had mild symptoms, of course, they, off, they almost always feel better. But when people are compliant with a gluten-free diet and have true celiac, and then they get re-exposed later by accident, oftentimes their symptoms are a lot more dramatic. But someone who's gluten sensitive and goes on a gluten-free diet, they're not really at increased risk for having problems if they intermittently eat gluten, I would say, in terms of having more dramatic reactions. Okay. And my only other question before we move on from food intolerances, let's say you think you might have one, but you're not exclusively eating that food. Like if you go out to eat and you keep noticing that you're getting like stomach aches after you're eating, how much time should you take away from a certain food for you to be able to tell? Okay. So how long do you need to eliminate a food to really know, is this the problem or not? Right. This is something that I see all the time. So really it should be a very short term. If you eat something that you're intolerant of, you're going to feel ill quickly, like that day, within a few hours, like that hour, maybe within minutes. Generally, what I do is I advise if I'm suspecting food intolerance that I want someone to stop a certain food and give it enough time to really understand, is this the trigger? I usually at a minimum ask them to stop it for a week. So a week to 10 days. And in a week to 10 days, if you stop that food and you don't feel any better, then you could be pretty comfortable. That's not the problem. And what also makes it tricky is if you're going out to eat and you don't really know all the ingredients in your food versus if you're cooking for yourself at home. When people eat out, oftentimes they eat higher fat because restaurants oftentimes will cook higher fat. People like the taste of higher fat food. So it's not uncommon for celiacs. You know, oftentimes you have to be super careful about whether gluten is getting in there. But for patients with like, say, irritable bowel, Oftentimes when they eat out, they are eating higher fat foods, whether they recognize it or not. So that's the place that you want to have your, your radar up and be thinking about that. But you're right. When you eat out, it's a little bit of a risk. What is the one thing you wish your patients would do to improve their gastrointestinal health? And conversely, what's the one thing you wish your patients would stop doing that's hurting their gastrointestinal health? I mentioned eating high fat foods, which does trigger GI symptoms and also makes them a lot worse in people who have underlying GI disorders. It's also probably not that healthy for you to do that. So keeping to a, a lower fat, especially bad fats like animal fats in particular, not so much healthy fats like avocados and olive oil, et cetera, that's okay. Being careful to not do things that could hurt you. You don't want to harm yourself. So Complementary medicine is great. Patients are interested in that. I encourage that, you know, working together with traditional medicine, but doing certain things that could be harmful that really don't have any basis in science. So for example, taking a bowel cleanse can hurt people, can really mess up their electrolytes, can make them dehydrated. People should be as careful with over-the-counter supplements and herbals as they are with prescription medicines, mm -hmm. which are 
extensively tested before they're released. And then in oftentimes in hundreds of thousands or millions of people after prescriptions are released. And a lot of prescriptions are based on natural substances. Herbals and over-the-counters have been implicated in some serious complications, including liver toxicity. So you, you just should be careful about what you put in your body. That's fair. Thinking about what you should be putting in your body, we reached out to our followers on social media and our colleagues just to let them know. And one of the top questions we got asked was how do I cultivate a healthy gut biome? I feel like that's become pretty trendy in the last couple of years. The microbiome is a super fascinating field, and I think it's going to be extremely important. And we are in our infancy in understanding it, mm. understanding the relationship to a variety of diseases, obesity, rheumatologic disorders, cancer, you name it. And of course, a lot of GI disorders. We don't really understand that relationship we think we understand what a normal microbiome should consist of, mm -hmm. but, and most healthy people who eat a, um, a balanced diet, you know, a lot of fruits and vegetables and salads, less animal fats, you know, have it and feel fine. They don't need to really do anything for the microbiome. Their microbiome is most likely fine. Hmm. If it's not in people who have GI disorders, the problem is that we don't have a standard way to figure out where you are now and a way to correct that. But in the future, I think you might be able to do a stool test and you'll get an analysis and you'll see, oh, I have excess this, I have deficient this, that's fine. Let's formulate a treatment specifically for Ms. Lopez. And she's gonna either take this coated pill that's not gonna dissolve and kill all the bacteria in her stomach, but actually make it into her small intestine or be delivered in an enema, into her colon somehow. And we'll use this treatment for a month. And then after that, you'll give a breath test or a stool specimen. And we'll be able to say, yeah, look, you, this is where you were before. This is where you are now. You know, you're fixed. So again, we're not there yet. But I think it's an area where precision medicine is going to play a big, big role. People will say, well, how about probiotics or prebiotics? And those medicines can help people with GI symptoms, but it's kind of unpredictable. For patients who have a lot of bloating and gas, sometimes a probiotic can help. The problem is that there's been studies and sometimes probiotics never make it through the stomach. If you look at how much survives the acid milieu of the stomach, it, it could be very, very low. Hmm. It's also been found that a lot of probiotics had contained gluten, for example. So a lot of celiac patients were taking probiotics to feel better. And then unbeknownst to them, there's some gluten in there. But for the most part, probiotics are very, very safe. There's some bacteria that might be beneficial, like bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. So you can look for those two on your probiotic. And, you know, if there's a good number of that, then I'm supportive of trying it if you're, if you're having GI symptoms. But I think someone who's feeling well mm -hmm. and eating a healthy diet, I think there's a really good chance your microbiome is just fine. So I'm not sure anything needs to be done about it just yet. Okay. That's good news. I'm going to go reminder to eat more salads. <laughs> well, speaking of a healthy diet and full disclosure, Justin, I love a diet Coke and sparkling water. Should we be steering away from these carbonated beverages for better gut health? The carbonated beverages don't hurt your gut. They're not, in other words, they're not doing damage. If I put a, a, a scope in there and looked, it would look fine. If I did a biopsy, it would look fine, but it can cause some distress for people. That extra air can cause upper abdominal discomfort. It's a risk factor for reflux in people who have that problem already. It can cause a lot of gas and bloating. And then 
specifically diet sodas, sometimes those sugars can be non-absorbed. And so they can lead to the food intolerance sort of situation with gas and bloating. So if you're doing things in excess, if you just have a Diet Coke here or there, you're probably going to be perfectly fine. But if you're drinking like a liter or two a day, then that could be problematic. For um, people experiencing acid reflux, at what point should you see a doctor versus just popping an antacid? When should patients with acid reflux seek medical attention? If it's just a very occasional issue or a short-lived problem, it's a new problem and you're just having some mild heartburn and you take an over-the-counter medicine once in a while and it helps, you probably Um, don't need to see a physician. If you've had a very long-standing heartburn, even if it's mild, but you've had it for years and years, it's probably worthwhile seeing a physician because what we worry about with long-standing heartburn is this disorder called Barrett's esophagus. And Barrett's is a condition where the lining of the esophagus changes to look like the small intestine. So instead of saying your esophagus lining looks like the small intestine, it has a name, it's called Barrett's. And why do we care about that? Because Barrett's carries a slightly increased risk for esophageal cancer. And so with Barrett's, when we think about assessing people for Barrett's, we think about the risk factors for Barrett's. In fact, there are people who could have a lot of the risk factors and not have any heartburn at all and have Barrett's. So what are the risk factors for Barrett's? Long-standing heartburn, older age, male, white, obese, cigarette, tobacco use, and a family history of Barrett's or esophageal cancer. If I see a 60-year-old man who's, let's say he came to me for some other reason, like talk about colon cancer screening, and I notice that one of his medicines is an acid-lowering medicine that he uses occasionally, I might bring it up and he says, yeah, I've had symptoms for 30 years. I use Tums a few times a week, and he used to smoke. He is overweight. He's a white man. He has multiple risk factors. I'm going to be a lot more inclined to do a screening up for endoscopy and make sure he doesn't have Barrett's. Whereas let's say I'm seeing a 25 year old man in the office who has terrible heartburn, but he's only had it for a month. Mm -hmm. I talk about like dietary triggers, lifestyle changes, and be much more inclined to say, why don't we try a medicine for a little while, see if we can get this under control and work on your dietary and lifestyle modifications and let's see without doing an endoscopy. And then if the response is not right or it persists or there's something else quirky that happens down the line, then I would think about taking a look, but it wouldn't be my first thought to dive in and and take a look. If you have those risk factors that I mentioned for Barrett's and particularly if you're having longstanding heartburn or if you have any alarm symptoms, what are alarm symptoms? If you're having trouble swallowing, The food's getting stuck when you're swallowing, Mm -hmm. you need to see the doctor. If you're losing weight, you need to see a doctor. If you have an associated anemia, you need to see a doctor. If you have a bad family history, so a first-degree relative with esophageal cancer or Barrett's esophagus, then I think it's, it's a good idea to get checked out. And that leads us into getting checked out and talking about colonoscopies and colon cancer. Can we talk about when you need a colonoscopy? The guidelines recently changed and now people 45 years of age and older are recommended to begin regular screening, but diagnosis of colon cancer or colorectal cancer are on the rise in people under age 50. 
even as young as people in their 20s are being diagnosed. We'd like to see what your take on that is. Sure. The first thing is there's absolutely no controversy in getting screened for colon cancer. There's innumerable societies that recommend colon cancer screening. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which is what insurance companies go off, the U.S. Multi-Society Task Force, which is combined of all GI societies, the American College of Gastro, American Cancer Society, all the evidence strongly supports colon cancer screening because the risk for colon cancer in someone's life is as high as one out of 20. Mm. And colon cancer is a highly preventable disease. And the reason it's preventable is that almost all colon cancers start off as polyps or little growths in the colon. And so if you find those growths and you cut them out, you really reduce the risk for getting and dying from colon cancer. Now, in terms of the recommendations being lower, there's a couple of things that have changed in, in the last decade, I would say. One is we've seen that there's a dramatic decrease in the incidence of colon cancer and death from colon cancer in older patients. And that directly started when colon cancer screening became widespread. And so that's attributed not to people eating more healthy or losing weight or other things. It's really attributed to colon cancer screening. But when you look at younger patients under the age of 50 or under the age of 45, there's actually been an increase in colon cancer over the last couple of decades. And of course, this is a group that's not screened because, well, they're young and it's just not cost, has not been cost effective to do so. Now, colon cancer in young people is still very rare but because of this trend towards more colon cancer in younger patients, that's led to the recommendation that average risk people be screened starting at age 45. Even though we don't screen patients under 45, we have a really low threshold for doing colonoscopies when people show up with complaints of rectal bleeding or a change in their bowels, things that you know might give us pause. We're just going to be a lot quicker to say, let's do a definitive test. Let's make sure everything's okay. If you're 30 or 35, and then if it's normal, which it's highly likely going to be normal, then I'll see you in 10 or 15 years when you come back for your regular colonoscopy. And how does family history play into this? In terms of family history, family history is very important. What we're most concerned about is family history in first degree relatives. So we're talking about parents, brothers, sisters, even children in some cases. I've seen colon cancer in a 28-year-old. That's important information for her parents, not just her siblings. Mm -hmm. So the most firm definition of what's a family history is if a first degree relative has colon cancer under the age of 60. Okay, that's considered young. Or if there's two first degree relatives with colon cancer at any age. And the recommendation for those folks with that sort of family history is they start at age 40 or 10 years before the diagnosis in that relative. Mm. So in other words, if your sister was diagnosed with colon cancer at the age of 30, that means you start having colonoscopy at the age of 20. The other thing to remember is that a lot of inherited colon cancer syndromes aren't just colon cancer. And one of the most important conditions is a condition called Lynch syndrome. And Lynch syndrome is a genetic problem where your DNA doesn't, normally in healthy people, if there's errors in your DNA, it gets repaired. Mm -hmm. But in some patients who have Lynch syndrome, that repair process is impaired. And so those patients have increased risk for a lot of different cancers, particularly endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, stomach, brain. And so 
I ask about all family history. And so if I see someone in the office for reflux and I start hearing about multiple close family members with gynecologic cancers at early ages, that's like an alarm signal for me. I'm quick to think about was there genetic testing performed, mm-hmm. which is always best done in the affected person. So the person with the cancer, but sometimes they're not available. So it's good to know about all cancers and colon cancer in particular for this purpose of this discussion. And can I just circle back to that that last point you said about the symptoms that would trigger you to say, just get a colonoscopy? You had mentioned blood in the stool and whatever were the other symptoms? A change in your bowels. Mm-hmm. Let's say you tell me I move my bowels once a day my whole life. And in the last two months, it's really hard to go to the bathroom. I'm really straining. I go every three days. This is a complete change and there's no dietary change. There's no new medicine. There's no circumstance. So that's a change or a weight loss. I worry about mm-hmm. or abdominal pain. And especially when there's a constellation, I was seeing a patient with one of our fellows this morning, who's 35. He's had weight loss, a change in his bowels and abdominal pain. And we scheduled him for a colonoscopy. And hopefully, you know, it's very likely everything's going to be fine, but it's important to rule out structural abnormalities in that case. If you're someone whose parents have gotten colonoscopies and there have been polyps found and then they're removed and they're totally fine, is that something you should worry about thinking there's something cooking in my colon and I have to wait until I'm 45? Good question. So it depends. It always depends. The colon cancer recommendations in terms of family history also apply to this condition called an advanced lesion. And very few patients really will come to you and say, my mother had an advanced lesion. But what an advanced lesion is, is that's a large polyp or a very abnormal polyp when the pathologist looks under the microscope. If you came to me and said, no one in my family had colon cancer, but my mom did have a very large polyp that had to be removed surgically when she was 50. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it wasn't cancer. You would treat it the same way as a family history of cancers. And then the other important thing is when people have a lot of polyps. That affects the person who you're taking care of also and family members. It's not uncommon for me to say, look, someone says, my mom had like a lot of polyps. Then the doctor's asking her to come every like two years for a colonoscopy. That seems like a lot, doesn't it? And I said, yeah, that does seem like a lot. I said, if your mom's willing, see if she can get me a copy of her colonoscopies and her pathology reports. Because once you have more than 10 precancerous polyps, then your risk for having an inherited disease is much higher. And that justifies a visit to meet with a genetics counselor. Again, always better to test the affected person. That means the person who's having those polyps because that has big implications for that person and for their family members. And once you are recommended to get a colonoscopy screening and you get that scheduled, can you break down what the PrEP is like leading up to the screening? and what the different types of PrEP that are available at Jefferson? The PrEP is really important because if you can't see what you're doing, you're not gonna be able to do a good job. And if you can't have really good visualization, you're gonna miss polyps. And when you miss polyps, that increases the risk for getting colon cancer after a colonoscopy. So a lot of the quality metrics related to colonoscopy are related to the bowel preparation. We have a specific scoring system that we use in all of our reports at Jefferson. It's a standardized thing. It's called the Boston Bowel Preparation Score. And it's been shown that if you have a certain score per segment of the colon, you have an adequate preparation. 
And so that's included by default when we do a colonoscopy, that, that score is included in your report always. In terms of bowel prep, there's a few elements to a bowel prep. One of them is the diet the day before. So many people put people on clear liquids for a day, and that's fine. It's probably also okay to eat the day before in the morning before your colonoscopy, not the morning of your colonoscopy, but the morning before. And if you are going to eat, and best to do that maybe before 10 o'clock in the morning, then you can eat a low residue diet. And no patients know what a low residue diet is, but it's basically not eating healthy foods. So not eating salads or whole grains or raw fruits or raw vegetables. You could eat like a bagel without seeds and cream cheese, for example. You could have some eggs if you want. So your doctor may suggest clear liquids the whole day, or they may say you could have a low residue diet for breakfast the day before. And then typically it's clears all day and you can drink all night up until about three hours before the colonoscopy. We don't want to starve people or deny them. One of the biggest risks from taking a bowel prep is dehydration. So we don't want them, we don't want to say you can't drink for 12 hours before your colonoscopy. The anesthesia rules for conscious sedation, which is what we administer for colonoscopy, is two hours. So we extend it to three hours just as a little cushion. The second element is the prep itself. So you're going to give a medicine that's going to cause a tremendous amount of diarrhea, such that the colon's clean and you can see during the colonoscopy. And there's a lot of different options. But one general rule is the idea, the concept of split dosing. In particular, the idea that you want to give a dose of the preparation close to the time of the colonoscopy. And that's been clearly shown to result in superior cleansing. Whatever prep we do, we always finish the prep about three hours before the colonoscopy. And so we time it to the time of your colonoscopy. So let's say your colonoscopy is going to be at noon. We'll have times it such that you're going to finish your prep around nine in the morning. I also did a study several years ago on a same day prep. In other words, no prep the night before which helps people sleep so they can sleep all night. And then they start the prep in the morning. And this is for patients getting an afternoon colonoscopy. They still split the dose. They still take an early morning dose and then a later morning dose. The concepts of splitting and giving that dose close to it is, is really important. In general, there's two categories of preparation. One is PEG-based, this thing called polyethylene glycol. And that's like Miralax. People have heard of Miralax. It's an over-the-counter laxative. That's PEG. And so we use two preparations. We use a Miralax Gatorade prep. And that's for healthier patients, patients who don't have serious medical problems like advanced liver disease, significant heart disease, kidney disease, et cetera. And the vast, so the vast majority of people. And so we use a Miralax Gatorade prep, which you take three liters. You take a liter in the late afternoon, a liter in the evening, and a liter early in the morning. Or we use this other prep called PEG Electrolyte, which doesn't taste as good because it has a lot of electrolytes, basically, that's balanced with your serum. It has a lower chance of disturbing your serum electrolytes. And we use that. You can use that in anybody, but we're going to use that for sure in patients who have serious medical problems because although no prep has been proven to be safe, that's the standard of care for patients who have significant medical problems. Okay, great. And then what can a patient expect to happen if the colonoscopy comes back positive, meaning that there was polyps detected? We have specific guidelines on um, what to do after a colonoscopy based on the findings. If it's normal, then they come back in 10 years. If they have just a couple small 
adenomatous polyps, then they can come back in seven to 10 years. There's actually good evidence that those patients who have just a couple small adenomas have no higher risk for having anything bad happen to them in the interval than compared to someone who has a normal colonoscopy. So 10 years is fine. Some people are more conservative and will err on the seven-year side, as do I, actually, for that. And then there's a host of recommendations depending on what the findings are, how many polyps, how big the polyp is, if there's sort of abnormalities on the polyp, the pathologist sees. And it's all really clearly laid out. So it ranges anywhere from, I'll see you in six months, mm-hmm. to I'll see you in 10 years. It really depends on, on what the findings are. But normally, I'd say it's going to be, the most common is, is seven to 10 years. That's the vast majority of people. And sometimes it's three years. And, and far less frequently, it's going to be something less, less than three years. Is there anything that you would just like to add in general about colonoscopy screenings? Maybe like the anxiety of people going through the process of the screening or the anxiety of the prep that you just would want to share with them? I think universally, people who have had colonoscopies will say, of course, the preparation is the hardest part. And, And it is the hardest part. When you think about it, you don't have to prepare at home for a day when you go for a mammogram. Or if you go for a PSA, a blood test to check your prostate. But going for a colonoscopy takes work, and it is work. But it's far better to prevent colon cancer than to have colon cancer. And it's really a small price to pay, I would say. And you know, some patients will say, well, I don't really want to get up at four in the morning to finish the medicine. But if I told you, you know, you want a free trip to the Caribbean, but you have to get to the airport at five o'clock, I think you would never say that's too early. I'm not taking that trip, mm-hmm. but this is a life-saving procedure. And it's probably going to be something once every 10 years. The procedure is very, very safe. You're very comfortable for it. And most people wake up and say that was the best sleep I ever had in my life uh, for the vast majority of people have a very positive experience. And of course, there are risks, but the complications are rare. And the thing is, if you don't want to have a colonoscopy, there are other ways to get screened. There's stool tests that can be very effective. And so, you know, when it comes to colon cancer, the most important thing is to get screened. As long as you're willing to have a colonoscopy, because if you have a, a positive stool screening test, then that means you need a colonoscopy. So if you came and said to me, under no circumstances ever will I have a colonoscopy, then I wouldn't do screening because a positive screening test leads to a colonoscopy. But I would hope you wouldn't feel that way after our discussion. I mean, Jess and I are ready for our trip. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go. I'm ready for the sleep. I'm ready for the peace of mind. Definitely. And our last question is, what do you wish your patients would ask you in terms of managing their overall GI health? I don't mind when people like look online and read about their disease or disease that they think they might have, because it's a start of a discussion and it shows that people are interested and that's, that's fine. I think it's good to do some research. It's good to read about what you have. It's good to have a partnership with your doctor and your provider and explain what your concerns are, what you'd like to do, what your preferences are, because in the end, if working together, I think it's going to result in the best outcome for the patient. We want people to be compliant, but we also want to be realistic. So, you know, if you tell me you're not going to take a medicine that's twice a day, then I'm going to give you a medicine that's once a day. Maybe it's not my first choice, but 
I want to give you the medicine that you're going to take that's going to help your problem and not give you something that you're not going to comply with. I think working together, understanding your illness, having a partnership, I think those are the most important things. Be sure to check out the show notes for additional resources, including the link to the Living Well blog where we publish full episode transcripts. In our next episode, we're focusing on heart health. So if any cardiology-related questions come to mind, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at livingwell at jefferson.edu or slide into our DMs on social. And as always, if you enjoy our podcast, we truly appreciate a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And fun fact, the full podcast episodes are also available on our YouTube channel at Jefferson Health. Check it out. Production support for today's episode provided by Brittany Rafalak and Barbara Henderson. We're your hosts, Jess Lopez and Carly Williams. Be well.